0: Oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jamie Marisotis. His new book is Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. As computer technology advances with dizzying speed, human workers face an ever-increasing threat of obsolescence. In Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines, Jamie Marisotis argues that we can and must rise to this challenge by preparing to work alongside smart machines, doing that which only humans can. Thinking critically, reasoning ethically, interacting interpersonally, and serving others with empathy. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jamie Marisotis. Jamie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: It's a thrill to have you. You've written a new book, Human Work. And this is actually what you your whole life. It's funny. Your life's work is uh, human work. Right? How did that become? Uh, you run a foundation that actually focuses on getting people post high school educational opportunities. How did your life's passion? How, how did your life's work become human work? Yeah.
1: You know, it's an interesting question because you're right. I've spent my life at this intersection of learning and work and, you know, from, from my background, I'm a, I'm a first generation college graduate come from a immigrant family and I was fortunate. I, you know, I was able to get a college education, even though my parents didn't know what college was, the one thing they knew was that we were going, but I feel like I won the lottery. Right. I, I feel like I was extremely lucky. And so I've dedicated my career to making, um, um, Learning and work more inclusive, um, trying to serve more people, more diverse people, generally make it better for individuals and in society. But I think the people in the education world are increasingly being asked this question: which is, "What is education for? Education for what? Uh, what? What's what's the end goal here?" And as someone who had spent his career running a large national foundation, running a think tank in D.C. focused on education, I said, "You know, that's a that's a that's an important question. I think we need to answer that." and the conclusion I came to is that we have to prepare people for the work that only humans can do. And the path that I took on this was simply that, you know, we, we all know that work is changing in profound ways because of technology and artificial um, intelligence, and those things are taking over more and more of the paths that people used to do. But too many people are focused on, you know, the robot zombie apocalypse and the, and the robots are going to eat all of our jobs. I'm much more interested in this question, not of what are we going to do? when uh when the are we going to do the work that's left over when the machines do their work, or are we going to do the work that makes us uniquely human and so my answer is that we must focus on the work that's uniquely human we we know what machines are good at they're good at a lot of things pattern and repetition and speed, but machines don't understand subtlety and nuance and human interaction and you know this idea that I mentioned in the book about limitations and then refocusing on what our human skills and knowledge um, are and should be to define this uh, emerging human work ecosystem
0: i'm really intrigued about what you say there about the, the the human robot apocalypse because i just i just finished watching star trek discovery i've been a, a star trek fan my whole life it's a great uh kind of reimagination of the brand but even in the, in the in this highly technologized future the computers don't run the ss discovery or the starships right, so. right. <laughs> like even in the way futuristic where 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 ai and robotics and things have gone beyond what we could even imagine their imagination is still human central humans are central to the story they're central to command decisions to exploration the the human relationships are what the story is all about i mean what do you think it is that where the creators of star trek can have this vision that's very human-centered and as you're saying it's 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 radically technological and yet there is this complement complementary relationship and why are, do so many folks in the wider culture struggle with the, the robot apocalypse you yeah. know we've been through this in in several
1: uh successions over the course of history right so with the industrial revolution the fear was that um uh, you know as we industrialized that machines would take over the the tasks of humans And uh, the humans would be left with little to do. We saw this again with the with the technology revolution. And now we're seeing it with this new version where artificial intelligence really does allow machines to process information and to dig down deeper into data sets using these algorithms that have been developed that seem human like in nature. And so I think that's that's scary to people. It it makes people feel like uh we won't have anything left to do. You know, one of the things that I worry about is people keep talking about the future of work and I keep saying no, it's the work of the future. It's it's not a it's not a word game. The future of work implies that there may not be work in the future, right? And to me, it is ultimately what is the work that we can u- uniquely do? And you know, one of the things that you see in in you know um uh, the portrayals like Star Trek discovery is that human work involves things like compassion and ethics and empathy and, you know, our ability to be truly creative and co- to communicate with other people. These are things that the leading AI scientists who I, I talked to some of them in, in writing the book will tell you, we are, you know, uh, generations away from um, anticipating that machines can do those kinds of things. So, so th- this issue of human interaction, I think, is really important. And at the end of the day, uh, and you know, this is a point that I've, I've tried to make uh, since, since the book came out, um, the thing for us as humans is that for us, work matters. Um, it, 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 it has meaning. It has purpose. It gives us dignity. It gives us social mobility. Um, and um, as humans, work ultimately matter- mattering to what we do, I think is one of the things that won't go away in any sort of foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. The other thing I, I'm really curious, one of the things I love that you write in the book, you're quoting Ken Goldberg, I think, and you say, we shouldn't be teaching coding to preschoolers, reflecting on the proliferation of products and educational strategies that app developers and publishers peddle to teachers. They need to learn to communicate, collaborate, and build stronger connections to each other as learners. And you say Goldberg said nurturing these foundational human capabilities is the key to lifelong development, continuous growth of human workers. I mean, it seems like what what Goldberg is arguing, in, in which you sound fundamentally sympathetic to, is that we need to educate people to be human and connectors and discoverers and lifelong learners and adapters that that's more important than technological skills because the coding language you learn, you teach a, a kindergartner is going to be obsolete by the fourth grade anyway. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, some of this is like, is, it seems to be uh, you seem to be advocating a sort of, uh, it's an emphasis on the human and what's uniquely human is the ability to ability to evolve and change and adapt and learn and grow.
1: Right. I mean, look, we, we need basic, we need foundational human capabilities. We need numeracy. You have to know how to do math. We need literacy. you have to be able to read and write, et cetera. But the things that we can do when it comes to work, I think uh, are the things that we should be focusing on building those human traits, particularly early in life and not trying to get our preschoolers to code uh, or frankly, at the other end of the equation, trying to get adults who've been knocked out of a labor market to become the new coders if in fact they're not in a field that, that would sort of make it likely that they would wanna do that coding. And you know, one of the things that I've seen um, in recent years, and we particularly saw this before the for the pandemic, there's a lot of conversation about self driving vehicles and what are the truck drivers going to do with self driving vehicles? And there was article after article written about the fact that well, we could turn the truck drivers into coders. And I kept saying, well, number one, you're not going to get truck drivers to turn into coders because it's too far from what they know and what um, and and what it's not what they're capable of. It's what they're interested in but they have unique human capabilities, right? They understand how goods and services move. They understand how to interact with the people who are moving the goods and services. So let's get the truck drivers into logistics or into fields where there is a lot of job growth and meaning that will build on what they know and take them in that new direction. So the point is early in life or throughout life as your work-life changes, let's focus on those unique human traits and capabilities um, the ability to sort of build on what you knew before and actually apply it to your, hu- to your human interactions, apply it in ways that allow you to be uh, compassionate or, or, or strategic or empathetic or, or any of those things uh, that are those human traits and capabilities. To me, that's what's most important about understanding how we prepare people through this entire cycle, this, this, this virtuous cycle of learning and earning money and serving others that I think is, is, uh, core to the human work experience.
0: you talk a lot in the book about the anxiety that comes from from technological change. And again, people fear that you know work's going to go away, or humans are going to become obsolete. I wonder, you know, I mean, the events that rocked the country last week, seeing people storm the Capitol, I mean, this is arresting and and traumatizing, I'm right. sure for 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 most of the for most of the country. I wonder though how much of, of, of some of these populist, is populist anger is really about uh, politics, and how much about it re- is really about anxiety, just chronic anxiety about the nature of the future, and and and, and the, a fear that humans don't don't have a place in a rapidly changing world. Right.
1: You know, I I um, one of the uh, comments that people um, have given me feedback on the book is that they were surprised that a book about human work has an entire chapter on democracy and authoritarianism. (laughs) And, and um, I said, well, look, you know, one of the reasons why this is important is that what we know about rising authoritarianism and the history of authoritarianism is that the way authoritarian leaders get hold of, of, of nations and communities and keep that hold is fear, fear of change, fear of advantage, fear of the other. And so what the authoritarians want is they want, conformity and you can stoke that through fear and so what we've seen in this in this environment now with the rapid change due to technology and the changing nature of work and then you layer on top of that things like covid is that it tends to reinforce these fears that people have right so you know what have we seen during covid we saw rapid expansion of these these um information bubbles this false information about covid that has been replicated and 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 has become part of the lore now of, well you don't need to wear a mask because remember they didn't ask us to wear a mask at the beginning why are they asking us now and you go down that path it is this issue of of fear um and anxiety that i think um it gets reinforced in, in in these times like this to me one of the things that we know about education is that education is a bulwark against this. Now it's not to say that just because you get educated, you don't become uh, um, an anti-Democrat. Frankly, uh, Donald Trump has a college degree. So do some, some of the people that, that are supporting him. Uh, education is not going to prevent dishonesty, but what education is going to do is that it's going to help you become um, individually and us collectively better critical thinkers, better ethical decision makers, better analytic reasoners. And all of those things are, ultimately enhance our democracy they allow us to be engaged in active citizenship they allow us to freely express ideas they allow us to to you know combat those threats to you know what i think is a, a a deep human desire for freedom and for the free expression of of ideas and and self so you know, to me, that's that's why this idea of human work is ultimately about meaning and purpose, because it allows the individual to express that you can express that in these democratic contexts. And if you can do that, ultimately, we have a, a, a shared prosperity that comes
0: from that. Yeah, I really like the chapter on authoritarianism. And you, you have some interesting stats about how, you know, how, how there's a significant drop. When somebody goes to, say, an undergraduate institution about whether or not they think a strong leader or a strong man is good for the country. And, you know, I I wonder, it's interesting because you bring that up. And it seems like where the authoritarian chapter fits in the book as I read it is – What's good for democracy will be good for an evolving economy, and vice versa. the The same sort of democratic virtues that are, that involve critical thinking, empathy, uh, an ability to collaborate and and compromise. Uh, I love that one line you have from the Star Wars film about compromise is a virtue, not a vice. Right? Uh, from one of the Star Wars, I guess, one of the prequels. Right. That, that, that those the same things that, that that create. It seems you're arguing a democratic healthy anti-authoritarian culture will create an adaptive culture that can change with technological change the human skills is that fair to say that's
1: exactly right and you know there's a there's a i'm not a psychologist but there's a part of of human psychology i think that um does uh and it's uncomfortable to say but but it does um you know until we sort of develop those traits of being a critical thinker and an analyst and being able to understand what truth is and being able to understand objectivity and things like that. um, We, we do tend to um, sort of um, be, be, be motivated by authoritarian tendencies. And, you know, again, I, I wrote the book came out in October, which means it came out before what we saw on January 6th, obviously. Um, And, but I mentioned in the book, you know, um, a quarter of Americans, Said you know last year that military rule would be a good way to govern our country. Well, there's something not right about that. Now that may not be surprising now that we're after January 6, 2021, but at the time, it it's it's very jarring. And the reason is that uh, people do have that fear. They they do have that anxiety. It's it's economic anxiety. It's social anxiety. It comes from that from that fear of loss of advantage. It comes from you know we've. We've we've been um, all reading and trying to process what's happened with Black Lives Matter and white supremacy over over the last year to to better understand these issues. That in fact, part of one of the, the reason why we've seen so much reemergence of white supremacy is this fear of loss of advantage. And um, you know that really uh, gets mitigated when people uh, become better critical thinkers when they when they truly can do their own problem solving and make their own decisions. And and it builds their ethical frame and, and ultimately their, their compassion and reasoning.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm interested also as, as we think about um, the developing economy and how we educate people. And so much of your book is thinking about how we form people for the future of work. Everything, you know, everything, the emphasis seems to be STEM, 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 every, educate yeah. everybody in STEM, STEM, STEM. And it sounds like in your book, like things like liberal arts would be just as useful or more useful for people because especially since kids grow up with, technological savvy right i mean kids i mean now kids are on technology all the time the, the thing is is these human skills right yeah. the advanced education that you learn from reading the great books and learning to appreciate art and learning um how to break down arguments and ideas and things like that is that fair to say that that maybe there's too much emphasis on 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 just get a good stem education and you'll be ready for the for the for, for the future of work
1: yeah i i guess i'd argue scott that it's a false dichotomy and i think that's the problem that we've had is that the push towards STEM has led people to conclude that we don't need the liberal arts. And I think that's where we, where we've gone wrong. Look, uh, you know, again, there's real value um, in building a broader STEM capabilities in society because we do need people to understand scientific concepts. We do need people to develop and, 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 um, and create new technology. You know, we, we need all, all of those things. We need people who understand mathematics and the advancement of mathematics and all those things. But that on its own is not enough. And so it is what we've always understood from the education perspective you need to do, which is that if you get a diploma, a degree, a certification, whatever the credential is, it should represent both content knowledge and these broader generalizable skills. But what's emerged now in human work is our understanding that those broader generalizable skills, the critical thinking and the problem solving and all that are going to grow in importance over time because it's our adaptability as humans, our ability to be to to go deeper when it comes to ethics and compassion and and critical analysis and all those things, those are going to have to be developed and grown over time. And the other part of this is that um and and you know again it's a point that I try to make in the book, I think we are long past the point where we have this one and done idea about education, right? We we have a sort of of, of a time frame as a, as a society saying ideally you, ideally you learn earlier in life and then you work later in life. But the reality is we're gonna have to ratchet throughout life learning and working in this ongoing cycle. And what we're gonna have to develop over time is more and more of those human traits and capabilities because the machines will be doing more things. They will be taking on more and more of those tasks where their speed, their algorithmic algorithmic capacity, et cetera, is better. Um, we will need to keep developing those things. So it is not STEM or liberal arts. Um, liberal arts, by the way, is a brand, if you will, that probably has some some taint associated with it. Uh, I don't think that's fair. I'm, I'm a liberal arts graduate. I, I, I believe uh, pretty, pretty strongly in, in the value of it. But I think what we want is what is uh, intended in liberal arts, which is to develop people to be active citizens, to be critical thinkers, to be people who are actually going to um, um, find meaning and purpose in work and in life. And um, we'll have to keep changing education just the way we need to keep changing the rest of society. But I think you will see more and more emphasis over time on building those those human um, work traits and capabilities. And yes, uh, the way we've done that historically in um, liberal learning institutions is certainly one of the best models for that.
0: Yeah, I remember... A friend of mine who did a master's thesis at Penn on Morton Adler, hmm. um, the, you know, guy that wrote um, how to read a book and right. Uh, Adler was testifying before Congress about education in China and India or something, and and Adler was saying like, well, like if you're not in a, demo- a liberal democracy, you don't need free thinking citizens, right? You can you can do all technological kind of training. He's like, but you have to ask the ed- in the educational process, what are we educating for, right? And 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 if we're educating in a, in a vibrant not just economy, but a vibrant democracy, right? We need, everybody has to be, have these critical thinking skills, right? And lest we do slide into authoritarianism.
1: Right, I mean, and, you know, again, the the events of, of, um, of recent days and weeks are, are all a good example of that. Objective truth does matter, right? Um, you know, what happened in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th um, was perpetrated by people who believe or who were led to believe things that are literally not true and um so you know we have a responsibility to sort of help help them overcome that fear that white supremacy that anxiety that that uh, uh, that that effort to try to blame others for 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 um for uh, bad circumstances and one of the key ways to do that is to build these human traits and capabilities to to help them um better understand what truth is um and and what reality is, and again uh, authoritarians um their their job um we've seen this going back centuries is to systematically destroy the truth so that what you say becomes the only thing that people can recognize as being how things are or should be and um certainly that's been um um uh, unfortunately uh, successful in the tenure of of Donald Trump because we see a large number of people deny objective truth including people um in positions of leadership
0: i had a a a mexico expert on the show a couple years ago he he's an expert on the sort of mexican u.s economy and stuff and he was saying look i'm not saying that there aren't people that have lost their jobs to places moving to mexico but he's like they're not that many and i can tell you what towns they're in he's like it's 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 largely lost to automation and things like this i wonder I mean, part of what's interesting about your book is I think something's the more you can delineate something, I think you oftentimes the the less scary it becomes, right? And I think innovation becomes so so it's this big hairy audacious thing, and so it seems like so, so some of the angry populism, you know, it's easier to blame immigrants, right? It's easier to pl- undocumented workers or something because you can get angry at them, right? You can get emotionally stirred up. It's hard to get angry about innovation, especially when everybody is. um tweeting their anger right you're using innovation right. right i mean is that is that part of the mission for a book like this to help people understand that that if we can if we can get a handle on the transformation maybe we can maybe we can um relocate or maybe we can get mitigate some of the misdirected anxiety absolutely um you know and and to your to your point you
1: know look uh, again i'll go back to the industrial revolution right in the race between uh uh technology, um, and, 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 um, and, and work, um, you know, the, the technology always wins, right? So, so technology always comes out ahead. Um, and so, um, but what we know is that when technology wins, some jobs get destroyed and then more jobs get, but I think that this idea that technology will continue to be both, a destroyer and a creator, I think will, will be true. Um, and that, that's the lesson, right? So in, in that race, um, technology has always won. It always stays a step ahead, but the innovation that comes behind it creates more human opportunity, more work, more jobs. Um, and, um, we've, we've predicted the the end of work as we know it, um, going back centuries. And in fact, human work continues. And the reason that it continues um, is that for us as humans, we want to work. Um, we desire work. Work is a part of what defines us um, as human. Um, we want meaning and purpose in, in what we do. And, you know, I mentioned this Gallup survey in the book that even for the lowest um, income workers, or the lowest quintile of of workers, in terms of our of our nature as human beings,
0: you write in the book a little bit about the gig economy, which is i mean it's not like there always haven't been or or, or at least the Starbucks remember something like independent contracting, but it's taken on this life of its own right right and and technology whether it's uber workers or all sorts of um i t workers who are in a position where you can do contract work and have a lot more flexibility I wonder how much of of, of the of the future you think that is, and also I wonder. How it really, I mean, I think about the the debates about healthcare in this country and how it seems to to these things seem to be in conflict where it seems like if we had universal healthcare or something, it, it, then people would be freer in the economy, right? As opposed to needing to um anchor yourself in something that might be economically inefficient because you can't afford the risk of not having health insurance.
1: This is precisely the point. That that's very well said. And you know, I think one of the things that's changing yeah, look. You look at California and the ways in which uh, they've gone through this um, debate and uh, the law that they passed last year about uh, about uh, classification of of gig workers. It's because in the in the American model, again going back more than a century, we get much of our social safety net through our jobs, right? So we get our healthcare, we get our retirement. Um, now you don't get everything through through work, but you get many of those things through through work well if um you're not an employee if you don't have a job and the employer is not providing those things how do you get that social safety net i think i think that's a legitimate question i think that's something that 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 we need to focus on as a society because i think that it runs up against this idea that the the workers want to do more in terms of their interests and abilities to have that flexibility that these jobs you know for uh, you know, um, you know whatever it may be, Uber or what have you, um, allow them to do. But if they don't have that social safety net behind them, that that that's a big problem. So yeah, we we have had independent contractors in the past. Those are people who are sort of motivated by their own purposes and who who had the capacity to sort of build their own social safety net to connect with what government does. But things like basic human needs, healthcare, long term social security, we have to focus on that as a part of what this emerging um, human work ecosystem is going to look like. And I think, uh, you know, your point about healthcare is probably the best example, which is we need a better model, probably a universal healthcare model in order to be able to really accelerate that because we access healthcare through work. That's how we do it as, as a American society.
0: I had a friend who just was um, reading a book called the Nordic way. And uh, he was saying it was explaining the Scandinavian kind of perspective, which we often call socialist here. But the author was saying, no, it's actually more individualistic in some ways than the American perspective in that they want parity between every individual. And they said, like, if a spouse depends on the other spouse for their health benefits, there can't be parity. If the employee is dependent on the employer for a certain kind of safety net kind of things, then there's not parity. So they're thinking that when you have these kinds of things, that this kind of generous safety net for everybody, then you have real... Uh, uh, you have real autonomous agents that aren't they're that less coercible right and I, th- I mean i think that seems to be uh, far from um socialist or something it actually seems to be an innovative driver of the economy there
1: exactly and and you see it in lots of different ways you know another example would be that in in many countries around the world um, education at all levels is free or close to free. Um, we provide free education um, at the K 12 level, but not in in higher education. And so, you know, now we now have this debate over quote unquote free college. Um, now we can debate, I think, in a, in, a, in a fair way, what free really means in terms of the American model. But the point is that financial resources should not be a barrier to you getting an education because it is fundamental to what you should, what you need to have as an individual and what we need you to have in order to affect our shared prosperity as a society is access to high quality education. And again, not just early in life, but throughout your life. Um, you know, whether you're a young adult, someone mid-career or someone later in your career, it is this virtual cycle of, of learning, earning and serving that I think is really important part of what the human work experience is all about. So being able to provide true accessibility to that, the way we see in Scandinavian countries and in countries in other parts of the world is another good example of that. Whether we want to call it free, whether it follows their model, et cetera. Okay. Let's have that debate and let's talk about, about uh, what are the right mechanisms that fit the unique American circumstance. But I think this idea that it should be truly affordable, that resources should not be any barrier whatsoever um, is in society's interest that, that it is, um, education is not a private benefit that it that it, it accrues both to individuals and society when it comes to the benefits that you get from people who are educated again back to our point not just economically but also so, cult, culturally socially in terms of our of our democracy and our shared well-being
0: yeah and and based on the argument in your book like so okay everybody would find it scandalous if we said okay we'll provide uh, public education for everybody eh, through K through 8 and then all you're on your own. And if you want to go to high school, you'll probably have to take out massive loans right. to get to high schools. That and we'll have some state high schools and some Catholic high schools and some private academies, but you're gonna to have to take out loans to to go to any of them. People would find that more like, just scandalized. I mean, exactly. they people wouldn't but what you're arguing is by not I mean the, the main thrust one of the main thrusts of your book, Human Work, is that basically that's what we're saying right now. Because if 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 Public education doesn't go K through the undergraduate level. That's the equivalent. Uh, it is the equivalent of, of of stopping public education at K through eight or something. Now, I mean, it really leaves a, a huge part of the population um, crippled and 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 really behind the eight ball as far as their ability to be learners, earners, and servers. And one of the things that changed,
1: um, from a historic
0: perspective,
1: is that um, in the American economy and American society, a high school credential was sufficient historically, but it is not anymore. And so it used to be that what we were really focused on was literacy and basic literacy. And then hopefully you could get as many people as possible through a high school credential because that would allow them to be successful in American society. But society has changed and you you those things are not simply foundational. Those are not simply things that you get before the age of 14 or before the age of 18. Those are things that you have to keep developing and doing. And that's where I think this issue of the education system, whether it's a formal system like colleges and universities or workforce programs or using technology so that you, you know, direct to consumer mediated learning through the internet. Um, you know, there's lots of you can learn in community-based organizations and libraries. There's lots of ways in which you can learn and get credentialed for that learning that we should be thinking about. But ultimately it has to be this ongoing cycle of, uh, call it lifelong learning. Um, at, again, that's another it's it's sort of like um, liberal um, liberal arts. It has there's a brand problem associated with lifelong learning. Lifelong learning to too many consumers sounds like a, a sentence rather than something you actually want to do. But the point is that we want people to continue to learn and benefit from the learning over the course of their lifetime. That that's what's in it for them. Is that it should be a ratcheting of learning and earning and serving others. The more you learn, the more you you get from that, both financially. And in terms of your your well-being and your contributions to society, um, that meaning that we know all workers want to have.
0: I'm curious, just in your own social relationships, your friends, family, like people that you hang out with in private life, do you do you often think about do you do you take notice and take stock of who's happy in their work and who isn't? I mean, and, and what do you see if you do? What's the difference?
1: Yeah, I, I do. And um uh, for the most part in 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 my situation, so I'm a first generation college graduate. I you know, as I said, I feel like I, I won the lottery in in um in the opportunities that 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 I had to go. But I, I I am friends with a lot of people like me and a lot of people who are multi-generations of of people whose parents went to college and and and, and who found great success, et cetera. The thing that um that uh the people who are happiest have in common is that they are working in fields where they feel like they are actually contributing to that greater whole. Um, so they are working in contexts where they actually say, you know my job in healthcare, in, in education in, in you know wh- whatever the sphere may be um, helps helps me help other people be successful. I have lots of friends who work in tech and the people who work in tech, who are really successful are the people who see the results of what they're doing in terms of of the users of the tech and how the users of the tech are, are benefiting. Um, when you're more disconnected from the people, when you're more disconnected from the reality of what of what you're impacting and what you're doing, the less happy you are. And so, so I unfortunately have seen some of that in my friends and family uh, social group. Um, people who are disconnected from the impact of their work. And that actually um, is a negative on their satisfaction. So, but that's just an argument, I think, in favor of increasingly focusing on doing the work that only humans can do and preparing people for that, because many of those people, they are sort of in these um, in these situations where they are behind the scenes. um, They are, they are um, interacting only with a machine They are not getting a chance to actually see the meaning of what they're doing and they're not getting a chance to interact with other humans.
0: It's funny because I often reflect on the difference between like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and I'm a total Mac guy. (laughs) And I've always wanted, I always wanted Steve jobs to be like, to be Bill Gates. Right. But they're very different people. I mean, Steve jobs seems like a guy from everything I've read about him who was incredibly talented, but didn't get the learning, earning, serving thing. Um, Whereas Bill Gates gets it. I mean, he's a lifelong worker. He's not a cold and detached tech guy. He's, he seems to really care about um, the wider human culture and, Solving human problems and building human society. I think that I mean he seems like a, a kind of model citizen in, in the tech industry, who's really his success is sort of he's been a lifelong learner and grower and server. Right? I mean, does is, is he strike you like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, he uh, he continues to to demonstrate that by what he has done, not only through the Gates Foundation, but also in his post Microsoft life. Right. So he is really focused on. Um, helping to develop new companies and new ideas that are helping to sort of address the human condition—that's that, a, that's a key part of, of what he wants to do. So he seems to get it. He seems to want to contribute to the greater whole. Um, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not sure why that didn't necessarily come across with with someone like like Steve Jobs, but I, I've seen that firsthand. And we've we've worked um, in partnership at Lumina Foundation in collaboration with. With the Gates Foundation and their interest in global health, their interest in education, their interest in um, in uh, issues of, of uh, eradicating some of these large social problems are derived from what Bill and Melinda are interested in. That that's what they want to do.
0: Yeah, and I hope that uh, your work, at Lumina Foundation, and and your book leads to more uh, um, Gates like um, Bill Gates like people that are really lifelong um, you know lifelong learners earners. and and servers. It's a great book and thanks for writing it and thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it. Thanks
1: thanks very much. Great, great to talk with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.